I just read in one of the works of the Alter Rebbe called Lakuti Torah, that is through the Torah Shabbat Path, through the oral law, which is basically Talmud, and what we're studying here, Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law, that you get to the secrets of the Torah. Through the Talmud and the Halakha, you get to the secrets of the Torah. It's very counterintuitive because it seems very dry, very academic, very ar arcane even. And many people get lost in it and, and don't see the, the spirituality in it. And they can become totally divorced from, they can divorce the Talmudic study from, from Judaism, from a relationship with God in the very worst scenarios. But from the Hasidic perspective, which is really not just Hasidic, it's the Jewish perspective, the Torah perspective, the Kabbalistic perspective, which shines a light on the Torah perspective and illuminates what it, how it actually works. In the, apparently, well, from, from first glance, what seems to be very dry, legalistic laws is hidden and contained the deepest secrets of the Torah. Because the law ultimately comes from God's will, God's wisdom. And so even though it's expressed in this way, it contains within it great secrets. And it's not always easy to see. You have to be a great mystic and creative mind to be able to see it. But sometimes even a simple man like me can, can get something. And that we had that in our last class I thought was just so fascinating. We're talking about the shofar and how if you start embellishing on the shofar, you ruin it. You think you're beautifying it and you're coating it with gold and this and that. It's like, no, just leave it the way it is. The pure sound of the shofar. And I think it has resonance and relevance in almost everything in life. Everything in life can either be authentic, real, or it can be fake. But there's also a spectrum where even when something is real, some fake things, some shallow things can mix themselves into it. Egotistical things, foolish things can, can latch on to something authentic that we're doing. And here we have this in the halacha about the shofar. Leave the shofar. Hear the pure sound of the shofar. Don't mix anything else in it. Don't mix any gold. Don't mix any silver. Just let's hear the pure authentic sound. That was one thing. And there was another thing, which was, even if the sound of the shofar is not very, is not, uh, it, it sounds different. One shofar sounds like this, one shofar sounds like that. That doesn't matter. As long as it is the sound of that shofar, it's kosher. Which I thought was also incredible resonance in, you know, whoever we are, whatever we are, if we're authentic, if we're real, then that's a kosher sound. That's what God wants to hear. As we had, v'chol hakolot k'sherim b'shofar. Anyway, just so much. And in addition to the insight itself, also the insight about all these laws that we're learning, that each of them has deep, deep secrets of insight, of divine wisdom that they contain, even if they're, when they're not readily apparent. Okay. Well, that's my little editorial before we begin. We were in the middle here of this wonderful chapter about the shofar. The shofar is just, I mean, it's a fantastic phenomenon. You can write a whole book just about the shofar and all the laws of the shofar. Wouldn't that be fun? Write a book about the shofar, all the laws and all the mysticism, all the stories, the midrashim. One day, 
One day, one day, one day, one day, one day, we'll write a book about the Shefer. Okay, where were we? We were at Yutes 19. We're at Halacha 19. It says like this. Let's say a person decides, again, we were talking a lot about COVID and pandemics, which I heard is making a comeback. If the guy says, I don't want to touch this chauffeur, I'm not going to put my mouth on this chauffeur. I'm going to put the chauffeur a little bit like an inch, a half an inch, or even less. I'm not going to touch the chauffeur with my mouth, but I'm going to blow into it for, with a little bit of distance. Says the halacha, you did not fulfill your obligation. Since there's a bit of, of space that is intervening between your mouth and the shofar. So the Alter Rebbe is going in order. He said, first he says that if there's something actually intervening between you and the shofar, some substance, that's no good. Now he's saying even if it's, it's just air, it's just empty space that's intervening, that too is an intervention that invalidates your performance of the mitzvah. There has to be, you got to be uh, touching the shofar when the mitzvah is done. You got to be, got to be into it. You can't have, you can't be separated from the mitzvah. You got to be connected to it. You can't be standing at a distance. Chav. Any question, comment? We also, what we discovered in last class and other classes, is when the, when the Talmud goes into these kind of unusual cases, and like, when you first read it, it's like, why would anybody think of doing such a thing? Why would someone steal a shofar? It sounds ridiculous. So there's always, a, there's, there's first of all, because the Talmud it just addresses every possible case. I want to know what is the what is the divine law in this case, but there's a deeper thing here, which is that there's some deeper message in all of these kind of strange cases that you can uncover, and even if you don't uncover it, just studying it, you're you're, you're basically you're studying the metaphor, you're also gaining something, because this too is a is a it's an expression of the divine will, and that secret that's in there is there. May have, we have to wait till we get to the next world. To understand the secret of what we studied here. And if we're lucky, we understand it here as well. The great Sadiqim reveal it. So here we have another one of these unusual cases. Now somebody put a chauffeur inside a chauffeur. <laughs> I see you're wondering how that's even possible. Maybe maybe he heated it up. He heated it up. Yeah, sometimes you know. Trumpet, they do that kind of stuff ah. to change the tune. Ah. Very good. You can, have, you can have a small shot for putting this inside the big one. In a big one. Right. Right. Yeah, so it's, uh, we know it's possible. Why somebody would do it? Maybe he just wants to get creative again. He wants to uh, mix it up. He's getting bored of blowing the chauffeur the same way every year. Oh, 
לעשויס יצאו יניחו בלבוב שולם שידע היינו השם אליהו שעשולת עוד לפניכו אויז ביודכו וגבורו במינכו ושמחונו ידו על הכהל מה שברו כגוין שבצד הקוצר, הוא בוילט יוסי מנחיצוין. So at the mouthpiece, the inner shofar is sticking out, it's בולט, more than the outer one. And so what is he blowing into? He's really blowing into the inner shofar. וסוקה, ובצד הרוחב, אין החיצן בוילט יוסי מנפנימי. And furthermore, when you get to the other end of the shofar, The, they're, at least, the, the, um, they're at least even. In other words, the outer shofar is not larger and going out further than the inner shofar. And certainly, if the inner shofar is sticking out further than the outer shofar at the end, So, it turns out That basically you're just hearing the sound of the inner shofar. There's no interference. There's no admixture or commingling of the sound of the outer shofar. All you're hearing is the inner shofar. Because you're only hearing one shofar. This is the issue. If you're hearing two shofars, that would invalidate it. But since you heard the sound of one shofar, it doesn't matter that this inner shofar is surrounded and encompassed by some outer shofar. doesn't matter. That doesn't bother us. Because as long as you're hearing the sound of this one shofar, it's good. It's kosher. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I'm just trying to picture this. Is this me putting a smaller shofar into the end of the first shofar? Is that right? You're putting it into the end. Wouldn't it block the sound? Yeah. So, so I'm thinking that the easiest way to imagine this, this uh, unusual case is to think of a completely flat chauffeur, not a curved chauffeur. <laughs> And certainly not one of the Yemenite ones. <laughs> Then you really have to figure out how they would fit one chauffeur. But just imagine a chauffeur, you, you cut it so that it's just a, a, you know, a tube, just a flat piece. without any curves and it's nice and round with a nice big hole um, and you've put a, a thinner one inside the uh, the wider tube it wouldn't block the sound of the wider one it wouldn't block it no? well so he's saying in this case he's actually blowing the chauffeur the inner chauffeur he's not using the outer chauffeur at all for the sound it just happens to be surrounded by a bigger chauffeur And he says that's kosher, because you hear the sound of one shofar. But he's going to, as we've seen with the Alter Rebbe, you think you got the whole story, then comes another paragraph, and you learn new things. Qualifier. 
caveat, so forth. So let's see what he says. But this is only true if the inner shofar, the sound of the inner shofar is not changing. It's not being impacted and affected by the, by the outer shofar. If the coil, coil is the voice, the sound, if the sound of the inner shofar has, is affected, then it's going to be invalid. Or in another case, or at the other end where the sound comes out, the outer shofar extends beyond the inner shofar. So that means when the sound comes out, it's also coming through the outer shofar alone. Or if they're equal at the, at the mouthpiece, unlike the earlier case, where the mouthpiece of the inner shofar is sticking out further than the mouthpiece of the outer shofar. So if they're exactly even, then it's also going to be invalid. The Oz, Efsha, in all of these cases, the problem is, with all these three cases, is that you're hearing not the sound of one shofar, you're hearing the sound of two shofars. And therefore, you're not fulfilling your obligation. Why? Because the Torah says, Koil shofar echad amna the Torah says you have to hear the sound of one shofar when you hear it. One, one at a time, at least. You could s- switch shofars in the middle. It doesn't mean you only have to, you can only use one shofar for your Rosh Hashanah. But the sound that you're hearing has to be the sound of one shofar at a time, not two shofars. And not the sound of two shofarot. I have a comment, Rabbi um, Even uh, To me, it's even the first case, let's say you put smaller shofar inside of the bigger one. Yeah. If there's if the big one with at some point touching the, uh, the small one, the, the sound comes from vibration of the shofar itself. So yeah. it causes the vibration of the bigger one too if it touches it. So some sound will come, you know, like I said, there will be always supposed to be some kind of interference, you know. Yeah. If, even if it's still sticking out, you know, still if it's touching it somehow. Right, right. Well, maybe if the if the outer shofar is so wide that it's not touching. It, it, how can it be not touching? It's supposed to be sitting on something. It's not going to be, if it's laying down, you know, it's going to be touching anyway somehow. To me. Anyway, it cannot be up, up in the air, you know, the, even in the inner one. Well, maybe he's blowing upward. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but... You have to get creative with these cases. Okay. Maybe, is it, well, maybe the outer shofar is hanging from a string. Okay, <laughs> and the inner chauffeur. It, it could be done. It could be arranged. We just need a few engineers to figure it out. That's right. That's right. Okay. Thank you. But I think there's a very interesting uh, message here as well, right? The, the idea of, uh, of a real identity so deep. You know the, the beautiful metaphor of the Baal Shem Tov about the shofar? Beautiful, beautiful metaphor about the, the prince who the king sends off to the foreign, the foreign fields and he comes back after many years and he forgot the language of the palace and he comes to the garden and he wants to get in to go back to his father and the guard thinks he's a, a vagrant. He wants to kick him out and, the, and he's trying all of the speaking, whatever words that he knew, but he forgot the language. He's talking the language that he picked up along the way. Finally, he gives out a cry, Father, 
Abba, Tate. And, the, and this king, the king, his father in the palace, hears the voice and he says, that's my son's voice. And he comes running and they embrace. He said, that's the call of the shofar. The shofar is the cry of the soul. The soul comes from heaven, descends into this world and forgets the language of the palace. It forgets the language of, of heaven, of God, of divinity. It forgets its own language. And when the shofar it, it is, the, is the cry of the inner core of the soul. Is crying out to its father in heaven. Is crying out to its to its very self, its very essence. And so that there has to be this purity in any kind of compromise of it, where it's not authentic, where it's not its sound. There's some other sound that's mixing in over here that invalidates the shofar because it has to. Because the whole point of the shofar is capturing this this uh, essence, this pure essence. And therefore, that the integrity of the shofar is so important. That's why we have all these different, different laws that are expressing different ways that a person could not be connecting with that essence. Uh, so basically, if you derive from this, you know, you cannot blow two shofars at the same time because some people get creative to do that too. Right. You know, or something like that. You're not supposed to be doing that. And if it's say you're blowing shofar in one room and you can hear for some somebody else blowing next to it. That's not good either. Yes. So to hear one show for the time, exactly. Okay. okay. It's a little bit different in this case, but I think that you're correct. And we have the similar thing with, um, I think you're actually touching on a different thing, which is there's a, there's a, there's a rule in Talmud, in Halacha, Trei Kala Loi Mishtama, that you can't hear two things at once. That's right. You can't, your, your brain cannot process both things. And mm-hmm. so each one cancels out the other. And so, for example, when you're hearing... Um, I don't know if we have that law with shofar. There's some, there's some, there's some exceptions to it. That when you have something that's very special, then people are able to concentrate. We have this with the laws of Megillah that two people are reading Megillah at the same time. So that could be a, a, an issue of concentration. Here he's talking about where where the sound itself is compromised as having a, a double sound. Where in the case you gave Hillel. Each one in itself is is an authentic sound of a, a, a you know one solitary shofar. It's just that you happen to be hearing both of them um, at the same time. But I think it's a similar point. Okay, let me get invited. Okay. This is 21. Now the Alter Rebbe is going to address what well, we've been talking about shofar in general, but we know that we blow the shofar twice on the first day of Rosh Hashanah and the second day of Rosh Hashanah. And the second day of Rosh Hashanah is only by rabbinic authority because the Torah only requires us to have one day of Rosh Hashanah. The second day of Rosh Hashanah is by rabbinic decree, which is a long story why. We had that in our, I don't know if we got to it, but we, we, we will get to it in our, our Kiddush HaChodesh, our, our studies about the moon and how to sanctify the new month, how it came about that we have two days of Rosh Hashanah, even in, in Israel. But in any case, for our purposes, the second day is rabbinic. So you might think, well, the second day, you don't have to be that careful with all this stuff. Says al no. anything that invalidates the shofar on day one, Paisal Gambiyam Sheni. It's going to invalidate it on the second day as well. Even though the second day of Rosh Hashanah is quote-unquote only rabbinic. 
22. Any questions, comments? Weiter. Ah. Now we have a question. We have a technical question. You need to show for, for Rosh Hashanah, right? So if you're organized and you're living in a normal place with a normal shul, so you have the shofar before Rosh Hashanah, sitting in the place where you put it. Maybe you put it on a stand. Maybe it's in a special case in the rabbi's cubby. It's, it's, it's there. But we know that life is complicated. And it could be that Rosh Hashanah comes along and you're looking for the shofar and you don't have it. Maybe you're on the run from the Cossacks. Maybe you're, you've just been exiled in 1492 from Spain and you don't have the chauffeur sitting in the nice cubby. So what's the deal? We're gonna, you, may, you may run into an issue where the only way to get a chauffeur is to desecrate the holiday. Right? The holiday is kind of like Shabbat. And there's certain things you're not allowed to do. So what do we do with this conflict between I need a chauffeur, but the only way to get it is for me to desecrate the holiday. Says the Alter Rebbe, and this comes straight out of the Mishnah, attracted Rosh Hashanah. Shoifer shal Rosh Hashanah, ein mechalilin olav yom tov. Do not desecrate the holiday to get the shofar. Because Yom Tov, the, the, the obligation to observe the holiday is both a positive commandment, namely, observe the holiday, and it's a negative commandment, namely, do not desecrate the holiday. So it's two mitzvahs. The shofar, on the other hand, is only a positive commandment. If a person fails to hear the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, he desecrated a positive commandment where the Torah says you got to hear the shofar, but he's not desecrating any negative commandment. Torah does not say do not not hear the shofar. So we have when you put them up against each other, shofar on the scale, you put shofar on one side, you've got a, a positive commandment, hear the shofar. On the other side, you're putting the Yom of the holiday, which is both a positive commandment and a negative commandment, the two the commandments associated with observing the holiday are going to outweigh the requirement to hear the shofar. And this is significant because if it was only a negative commandment that you, were, you would be desecrating with, uh, with observe, let's say the Torah just said, don't desecrate the holiday, and it never said, observe the holiday in a positive uh, form. Then the positive commandment an obligation to hear the shofar would outweigh and would supersede and the negative commandment. But because it's observing the holiday is both a positive commandment and a negative commandment, shofar will not um, will not uh, supersede observance of the holiday. Now here the Altar Rebbe takes it a step further. Let's say the thing that I need to do to get my shofar is not prohibited by biblical law. It's something that the rabbis introduced as a way to observe the holiday in an even better way. I'll say, come on, the obligation to hear the shofar comes from the Torah, from the Bible. 
And so I'm not going to do the mitzvah because of a rabbinic enactment? Says Alter Rebbe, that is correct. Ein machal in You do not desecrate the holiday. Even in a rabbinic sense, if it's only a rabbinic prohibition, because when the sages, the rabbis, made their laws, they made them equal to those of the Torah. Ooh, this is a big one. And they, they, um, equated their rulings. Yeah, they said buttress the authority of their rulings. They, they upheld their words even to nullify the words of Torah, but he gives it a very specific qualifier. What does Bishev Altase mean? Shev means sit. Shev means sit. Altase don't do. So, in a case of sit and don't do, I'll explain what that means in a second, the rabbi said, yes, listen to what we have to say. Even if it means you're going to miss out on a commandment of the Torah, we are still going to insist on our, on our decree. Now, what does it mean to sit and not do? There's two ways that a person could be, could be desecrating or nullifying the words of the Torah. One is going and eating something not kosher. That's not sitting and not doing. That's getting up and, and doing something, actively desecrating the Torah. Sheval Tase sit and don't do means to passively transgress a Torah obligation. If a person does not hear the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, he has passively transgressed that obligation. He sat and didn't do. So it sounds from what the Rebbe is saying here, that if we're talking about something where you're actively desecrating the Torah, then the sages would say, don't desecrate, actively desecrate the Torah to, to maintain one of our laws. But to passively miss out on a mitzvah, the rabbis are saying, yes, that is what we are saying you should do uh, in order in, 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 to, if, if, if complying with the rabbinic law is going is to cause you to passively miss out on a mitzvah, yes, we're going to still, still insist on our, on our rules. And so here's the perfect case. A guy needs a chauffeur. Let's say the chauffeur is up in the tree. By rabbinic law, you're not allowed to go climbing in a tree on Shabbat. It's not a biblical law. So it sounds like, oh, okay, the Alter Rebbe is going to give us the example. I'm giving the examples. We, we, I can let the Alter Rebbe do it for us. So let's see. Any questions so far? Okay, let's see the examples. 23, Chof Gimel, Ketzad, how so? If the Shefer was at the top of a tree, Rosh literally is the head. Here it means the top, the top of the tree. Or the Shefer is on the other side of the river. Just like Abraham, who was from Eved Hanor, the other side of the river. That's how he became Ivri, the Hebrew. And he doesn't have any other Shefer. Remember, this guy's on the run. Elahu, the only Shefer that he has, is the one on top of the tree. Because it was hidden there. This, I mean, we're getting creative over here. They hid the shofar over there so the anti-Semites wouldn't find it. Now it's up there on, on Rosh Hashanah. Or it's on the other side of the river. They left it there because they were running. And things get left behind. Just like Jacob, something got left on the other side of the river. He's not allowed to go up on the tree. And he's not allowed to 
He's not allowed to swim across the water in order to bring it. Now, it's obvious what he's saying here. These are, these are rabbinic decrees. There's no, there's no biblical problem going up in a tree. There's no biblical, um, no biblical prohibition on swimming on a holiday. That's a rabbinic enactment. And said, and still we're saying, sorry, you're going to miss show for that year. It's the way it is. It's all good. This is what God wants. Now let's say a pile of stones falls on the shofar. It's forbidden to, to remove and move these stones in order to take the shofar. Again, that's only a rabbinic prohibition. You're not allowed to move stones on the holiday. Right? It's called muktzah. Torah doesn't say anything about what you're allowed to move around on Shabbat. It doesn't get involved with that. But the sages said certain things you shouldn't handle on Shabbat. One of those things is stones. Because it's not a, it's not something you would typically be uh, moving around. You're also not allowed to go beyond the tochum, the Shabbos limits, in order to hear the sound of the shofar. And certainly, you're not allowed to bring the shofar from outside the Shabbat limits. Outside the Shabbat limits means, let's say you come to the edge of a town. You're only allowed to walk two thousand cubits beyond the beyond the edge of the town. Can't walk farther than that. Two thousand cubits, about three thousand feet. Of course, if there's another city within within that that measure, then you keep going. But if there's a gap between one city and another of three thousand three thousand cubits or more, you have to stop at three thousand cubits. So he's saying that too. You can't go further. What do you think? It's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. I saw a little bit of twenty four, which made it even more interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yes, the, there there is a way out. There's a way out, but I think I think it's phenomenal that I think it's a very important point. I think it's like sometimes we get we get caught up in the mitzvah. And it becomes divorced from the fact that this is a divine command. Like, I want to hear the shofar because I got to hear the shofar. I forgot that it's the reason I need to hear the shofar is because God says I have to hear the shofar. It takes on a, a life of its own. It's because I heard the shofar last year and I heard the shofar the year before. It's a, it's a thing that I do. I got to hear the shofar. Don't give me technicalities that... If I climb the tree is a rabbinic prohibition and so on and so forth, I gotta hear the chauffeur. So the Torah is telling you, the Torah is telling you there could be circumstances where you're not supposed to hear the chauffeur. If it's gonna violate something else, as important as it is to hear the chauffeur, if you're if you can't, if it's gonna violate some the holiday. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's more important to preserve the holiness of the holiday than to even hear the shofar. I think that's incredible. 
So it's maintaining the relationship with God in the right way by doing these things. You have to make exceptions in this other regards, this other regard, so you don't violate the, the relationship with God. Right, right. Yeah. It's almost like you're going to buy your uh, your best friend a present, <laughs> right? But you do it in an illegal way, or uh, you know, in a, doing something that he doesn't like. But I got to get him the present, right? That's the, the buying of the present is 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 some, somehow became divorced from the relationship itself. That's a good example. Take took on a life of its own. Okay. All right. So now we're gonna. It sounds very very sad. The guy's not gonna hear the chauffeur. There's got to be some way out over here. So that's why there's 24. Let's see. When do we say these words? Only a Jew is not allowed to go climb the tree or swim across the river to get the shefer. But if you can find a non-Jew who's not obligated to observe the holiday, if if the if the prohibition that you need to do to get the shofar like crossing the river or climbing a tree which is only rabbinic you can have a non-jew do that for you affectionately known as a shabbos goy for example alter rebbe gives two examples climbing the tree and bringing the shofar from outside those 2000 cubits and anything similar to this. But if we're talking about something that is really a desecration of the holiday by biblical law, let's say, I kept having trouble thinking of an example, um, maybe the actual cutting off of the shofar from the animal, still attached to the shofar, I think that would be a biblical prohibition. Or for some reason you have to light a fire to, to get to, to get to the shofar. I don't, I don't know exactly how that would happen. But anything that would be a real... Actually, lighting fire on Yom Tov would be allowed. Um, any, anything that would be a, 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 a violation of Yom Tov in a biblical sense, that would be prohibited even to ask a non-Jew to do it for you. It's only if it's prohibited by rabbinic law that you would be allowed to ask a non-Jew to do it for you to get the shofar. Still not done. <laughs> There's still going to be a bunch of qualifiers. So here we go. We call Mokim nevertheless. But if the non-Jew did it on his own. Let's say he made a shofar in Yom Tif. You didn't ask him to do it. He's a friend of the Jews. He knows that the Jews need to hear the shofar. He knows that they don't have one. He knows that they're not allowed to make one. So without anyone telling him, he went and made a shofar on Yom Tif. And, and desecrated a biblical law. Mutar liskoya boy, you're allowed to use that shofar. And even though we know that he made it for you. Now this is significant because for, you need a little bit of background in Shabbat law to understand the significance of what he just said. Generally, we have this concept of the Shabbos goy. The lights are off. Call the goy, he'll turn them on. The, the air conditioner went off. Call the guy, you'll turn it on. This is called the Shabbos guy. However, it's not so simple, and it's only in certain circumstances that this is allowed. 
But let's say you're in a room and it's dark and you can't read. And it's Shabbos. You can't turn on the light. You can't light a candle. Can you ask a non-Jew to light one for you? The answer is no. The, 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 um, the way that it's done, you see it in shuls happening, is because there's a there's special dispensation if there's a big crowd. If there's a community, if there's a congregation, then you can turn on the lights in the shul. But just for an individual, it's not allowed. For an individual, you can't have the non-Jew turn on your light for you on Shabbat. Furthermore, if the non-Jew sees that you need light and you're trying to read and you can't read and he comes in, he turns on the light for you, you have to go out of that room. You're not allowed to take benefit from the, from the light that was turned on for you. What, sweetie? Why are you pantomiming me? Just tell me what it is. At <laughs> the wire? Okay, I'm in the middle of a class. Um, yeah, you're not allowed to take benefit from, from work, from Shabbat, the transgression that a guy did for you. So here he's saying, now that's now you understand the background here, that he's saying something very significant. He's saying that if the guy made the shofar for Yom Tov, even though he did it for you, it wasn't like, oh, it's, I'm sorry, I didn't finish. Let's say the non-Jew turned on the light for himself, not for you. He wanted to read. Oh, then you can, you can enjoy the light because he didn't turn it on for you. But here he's saying that even when the non-Jew turned, made the shofar for you, he didn't need a shofar. What does a guy need a shofar for? Still you're allowed to use it. Why? We don't, we're not concerned that if we allow him to use the shofar, then he's going to go and tell the guy to make one for him in, in, in the future. We only say this principle that you can't take benefit from what Ananju did for you on Shabbat only with something that is something for a material pleasure. The commandments were not given to us for physical pleasure of the body. So in that case, we're not concerned that a person is going to desecrate and and do a transgression in order to do a mitzvah and therefore you're allowed to use the shofar that was made by the non-jew we're not afraid that one day you'll you'll ask the non-jew to make it for you because a person wouldn't commit a sin in order to do a mitzvah not yet done but we'll leave it there because uh We think we got a taste of this mitzvah. I mean, this this uh, this Allah. Let's read one more, number twenty-seven. You're allowed to put some water or wine into a shofar in order to cleanse it. You're allowed to do this even on the holiday. Certainly, you could do it before the holiday. Um, it's not considered that you are repairing a utensil on the festival. You're not allowed to repair a utensil on the festival. So you might think, well, if I pour the water or wine in it, I am fixing this vessel. No, because I'm assuming the reason is because even if you didn't clean it, it's still suitable to be used as a shofar. You're just making it a little better. That's not considered repairing a utensil. This is also from the Mishnah. Aval, there is something that you're not allowed to pour into the shofar, and I'll give you a trigger warning. If you're having dinner, you might uh, take a little break. 
It talks about meiraglayim. This is urine. Of a meiraglayim af b'chayil aser For this would be disrespectful, even though it may be an effective cleanser, but it's not nice to use that for a shayfer. And this too, I find to be a great lesson. If you take it metaphorically, sometimes there are things that are practically, it's practically this thing works. I've I've actually used this uh, talking to my colleagues about sermons, right? When you have to give a sermon, of course you want to inspire the people, you want to teach them something, and it's it's not easy. It's a challenge. You got to make it interesting. You got to be a little bit humorous. You got to be a little sensational. You got to be dramatic. And it could be a temptation to cross the line into something that's maybe a little crass, something that shouldn't be said in a synagogue. And so I, I've, I've used this, uh, not this particular one, but a similar one, which we have about the incense. We read about it every day. It says, it could be very effective, but it's made a glime. It's not respectful. You don't bring it into the to a holy place. You don't use you don't use something that is crass, even if it's effective, into a holy place and, and, and into a shofar. So yes, it's important that the shofar sounds good. And you can put water in there, you can put wine in there. Let the shofar sound great. But to do something crass for the sake of a better sound come out of the shofar, that we don't do. We want to keep it clean. We want to keep it um we want to keep it pure. We want to keep it classy. And, and don't want to compromise on that. Even for, you know, the, me, the, 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 the means don't justify the end. Right? You're going to get a better chauffeur. It's going to sound better. Nobody will know. <laughs> no. The means don't justify the end. Everything you do, do it in a classy way. Do it in a respectful way. You can get your message across. You can give your sermon. You could give your class. It's gonna be. It's gonna be successful. It's gonna be interesting. You don't have to stoop to anything um, crass to to make your to, to to get your message across. So that, my friends, is the end. Brings us to the end of chapter five hundred and eighty-six, the laws of the chauffeur. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Uh, this is Shochonorach written by uh, Alter Rebbe. This is for the basically Chabad. Is it different from Shochonorach of you know Karu or like from other Hasidic you know groups or something like that or or uh, uh, Orthodox you know groups? The what they use is it a different one. Why would that you know uh, what the difference is if it's different? It's a great question. Uh, the Alter Rebbe Shochon Aruch probably 98% or maybe even 99% or maybe even more will be um, the same. There won't be any contradiction between it and and the Shulchan Aruch of Rabbi Yosef Karo or the what was typically is typically used today outside of Chabad is a, in, in Ashkenazic circles is called something called the Mishnah Berurah. Mishnah Berurah was written by the Chafetz Chaim much later. And there may be some minor differences, but mostly it's all coming from the same source. It's just different ways of of, uh, of categorizing it. The the differences between the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch and Rabbi Yosef Karo will be that Rabbi Yosef Karo 
um, was a, a Sephardic Jew. And on Rabbi Yosef Karo's Shulchan Aruch, there was something called the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Iserlish, who was from Krakow, and he wrote these little glosses where, where he differed from Rabbi Yosef Karo and basically laid down the Ashkenazic view, going back to the Maril from the 1300s. And, of course, the Alter Rebbe, being an Ashkenazic Jew from Russia, follows the Ramah. And so wherever there's going to be a, an argument between Rabbi Yosef Karo and the Ramah, this, this is going back to the, to the um, Ramah's 1400s, I believe, um, then the Alter Rebbe will follow the Ramah, and so will the Chafetz Chaim, because the Chafetz Chaim is also um, Ashkenazic tradition. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the Hasidim and Chabad being a Hasidic group follows the Sephardic version of the prayers more than the Ashkenazic. Mm-hmm. So many of the Hasidim, even though they're Ashkenazic Jews, their Siddur says on it, Nusach Sfarad. It's not the same as the Sephardic, but it, it, a lot of changes that were made to accord with the Sephardic Nusach of the liturgy. For, um, because the Arizal said, that the Sephardic version is closer to the Kabbalistic way of, of, of doing the prayers. But when it comes to the halakha, to Jewish law and to Jewish custom, the Ashkenazic Jews, even the Hasidim, follow the Ashkenazic uh, law and the, and the and Ashkenazic traditions. Um, so, the, so with the Alter Rebbe arguing with Rabbi Yosef Karo, it wouldn't be an original argument with Rabbi Yosef Karo, it would be that he's just following the Ramah. Now there were other there were other questions that came up from the time that the Shulchan Ar- original Shulchan Aruch was written and the Ramah between then and the Alter Rebbe's times that were debated among different sages, the Magen Avram, Rabbi Abraham Gambiner, and others. Um, and the Alter Rebbe will take a position and say, you know, we got to follow this particular one, and Chafetz Chaim will typically agree, but you do have some debates once in a while. Um, okay. But I'm guessing that most of these laws that we learn today, probably not much different. So I'll just give you an example. This last one that we read about the water and the wine. Here the footnote. Let's see what the footnote says. Rosh Hashanah 32 be straight out of the Talmud. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, it's quoted in the Shulchan Aruch. Um, oh, here he quotes the, the let's see what the mission quotes from the mission of Brewer over here in footnote 79. For the shofar, ah, he, uh, this, I, I was right, but the shofar could have been used even if it had not been cleansed. Mishnah Brewer adds that because it is permitted to rinse dishes on Yom Tov, cleansing is above, not a period of, okay, fine. Now this thing about the, the last thing that we learned is also in the Gemara and the side in the Shulchan there's no debate about this, that you can't use uh, the Meraglayim to clean the shofar, that is something to debate. So it's really rare that you're going to find some kind of a debate, especially mm-hmm. in these kind of halachot. Okay, thank you. That's a great question. If I may, if I may ask, and if you've covered this already, then I apologize in advance. Um, as far as the sounds are concerned, there are different different sounds. Do they have in the in in the scheme of things? A different meaning, a different interpretation. Um, there's different sequences. What should one, in you know, absorbing that and bringing it into a, bringing it in as you're listening it, is there a differentiation between the sounds and what one is supposed to um, feel or understand when you hear the different sounds? 
It's an excellent, excellent question, Charles. Thank you for asking that. It's a long story, but I'm going to give it to you the short version since we're at the ta- uh, espresso version. Ta- tail end of the class. So basically, we learned at the beginning that there are three, that there are, there's basically two sounds. There's the long sound called the tekiah, and then there's the broken sounds. Correct. And the broken sounds are sandwiched by the long sounds, the unbroken sounds. And what it represents, what it represents is that each of us comes from a whole place. Our root is in wholeness. It's in holiness. It's in divinity. It's in godliness. And we go through life and we experience brokenness. That's the experience of life. And the final, the the second tekiah, the second unbroken sound, means that after the brokenness, and even through the brokenness, we come to a, a wholeness again. But it's not the same wholeness. It's a greater wholeness that because of the challenges and the crucibles that we went through, we come to an even greater wholeness than we started with. And that's represented by the tekiah gedola. The last tekiah goes extra long. Tekiah gedola, yes, the, great, the great tekiah. I remember that, right. Yes. I remember that. And so it's, it's something that, that we go through in our personal life, the personal journey of each person's soul that comes from heaven on this mission into this world. Something that we all go through personally, but it's also collectively the Jewish people that we start off whole, we go through the exiles, we go through the pogroms, we go through the inquisitions, but at the end of it, we come out with the tekiah gedoyla, the tekab b'shoifer godol, that God will blow the, the great shofar, the great tekiah gedoyla, and everything that we went through throughout our history, we'll be able to understand it with the benefit of hindsight, that this is what led to the great, powerful tekiah gedoyla, that will come speedily in our days with the coming of Mashiach. Amen. Rosh Hashanah is in one week, my friends. Can you believe it? How's the brisket? You took it out of the freezer yet? (laughs) Take about a week to defrost. (laughs) all right good speaking with everybody and we will see you i will see you tuesday night rabbi yale will see you tomorrow have a great week shavua tov thank you so much thank you